So as we hit the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we've, uh, I've taken uh, the, the, the narrator, or the author of the book, has put together the end chapters in a very specific way to give these fast A-B contrasts between David and Saul, uh, which is great if you're just reading it, but preaching through it makes it more difficult. So we have, I've compiled uh, the chapters into chronological order, which will give us the same effect, which is that the narrator's desire to contrast Saul against David at the end of Saul's life. And so last week, we talked about David. Uh, when the story there, it ends with David uh, being saved by the enemies of God, the Philistines, from going to war against Israel. Uh, and he's walking back to Ziklag in defeat and despair and discouragement. And at the very same time now, the camera switches scenes and exactly as David is heading back to Ziklag, now we come to Saul. And Saul now seeing the forces of the Philistines arrayed against him. Uh, and this is no small raiding party. This is the Philistines finally gathering to, for war to completely crush Israel once and for all. And in his fear and his anxiety, he's turning. He turns to the only thing that he has left. Uh, and we see the panic of isolation, and we find the tragic end of his story. So this is a sad story today, but there's a lot of hope in it. So let's read. We're going to read 1 Samuel 28, 3 through 25, and then we're going to skip to the last chapter, chapter 31. Please uh, remain seated because this is a long reading again, but let's sit up straight and let's give our attention. Let's focus and listen intently to the beauty of the inerrant word of God. Uh, this is 1 Samuel, starting at 28, chapter 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. And the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when, he, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophet. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. And so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, and he had two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? And but Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, well, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up. He's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Well, then Samuel said to Saul, 
Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of, out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Before the Lord has, uh, be, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life into my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they rose and went away that night. Skipping now, chapter 31. Wakes up the next morning. And now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. The archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. Well, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went it all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and he burned them there. And then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh 
and fasted seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, sad story. Such a sad story. How do you find hope in that? What is the Lord trying to to show us through that and encourage us in it? Uh, In my very early, early, early Christian life, as I was uh, overcoming very beginning of my of my of my christian life overcoming my idolatry and my sin and my in my drug addiction uh, uh, I had a mentor early mentor to me who said to me he goes look you're a smart guy we bury a lot of smart guys around here if you want to overcome this you're going to have to be like Forrest Gump and I was like what are you talking about and he goes Basically, what I'm telling you is that when I say run forest, you need to just start running. And what was he telling me? What did he mean? What he meant was he's saying that forest was this picture of like simple trust in and love for the right thing. Uh, and that, that in that, it leads to freedom and life. And for us, the right thing is God. A simple trust in God, simple love for God over and above my great ideas and all of my manipulation and schemes towards life that I think are going to end up in freedom and in happiness, I need to disregard those and trust something outside of myself, something that has wisdom and experience that I know is good, and that something for us is God and Jesus, right? One of the things that made that movie so great was the contrast of characters and and the opposite of that picture is the character of Jenny. Jenny is portrayed as the girl that Forrest loves, but Jenny's portrayed as the free spirit who's always following after her own heart and following and chasing these things that she believes are going to bring her freedom and life. But as the story goes on, we see that it, she starts being crushed under the weight of suffering and death, and eventually she does, she does die. That's sad. Those kind of contrasts are really sad, but they're really true. Those kind of contrasts really exist uh, in real life, and that is what is happening at the end of 1 Samuel here. The author, what he's trying to do is give us this stark contrast between Saul and between David. He's trying to present us uh, with, we saw last week, David had spent his life, even though he was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination, even though you could make an argument that externally Saul was more holy than he, we saw the picture of David was that he was constantly leaning into and relying on the love of God. and, and, And we saw last week that the grace of God was there supporting him even when he had given up on God. And that's now, we're going through these A, B sections in, 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 the, in the narrative. It goes, it goes, David, Saul, David, Saul, quickly. Last week we saw David, this week the, the contrast is now we see Saul who has spent his whole life really wanting to be free, wanting to be free from the constraint of the love of God. He was fine being uh, outwardly, externally religious, but what he wasn't fine with uh, was the constraint of God's love, trusting in something outside of himself. And we see at the end of this story that he is being crushed under a burden uh, that is far heavier than he could ever have imagined. 
And that is the big lesson for us. That's the reason why the author is contrasting this at the end of the story. He wants us to see uh, that the burden of the law is heavy, but the burden of Christ is light because Jesus has walked through the darkness for us. The burden of the law is heavy, but the burden of Christ is light because Jesus has walked through the darkness for us. Let's look at that one part at a time. The burden of the law is heavy. Through the whole story, I have been, I'm sure we've all been, we, we were attempted to look at Saul through 21st century lenses. In other words, we see Saul uh, rejecting God or rejecting God's word and we automatically assume that he's an atheist or an agnostic in a 21st Western culture kind of a style, but that is not true. There are no atheists in this story. Saul is externally extremely religious and he's very religious all the way to the very end. Listen to what, listen to what he says even here in this story. Listen to what, he, what, what it says about Saul and what he's doing. Uh, look at uh, 28 verses 9 and 10. And then the woman, the necromancer, the woman says to him, Surely you knew what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. See what he just did? The text first, it tells us that Saul in his kingship is, in, is instituting and enforcing law from the Torah. That law is from Deuteronomy chapter 10 of the medium, casting out the mediums, casting out the necromancers. And, and then the irony of it is that when she questions him about it, he, he reassures her by swearing in the name of the Lord, as the Lord lives. Externally, he's pious right up to the very end. He even, uh, we see him even going to uh, where, what the, whatever priest he had or even seeking the Lord's direction at first through religious ritual. Uh, why is he doing that? Because externally, what legalism is, what, what reliance on the law is really all about isn't really doing the law. It's, it's a combination of taking the law of God and bringing it down to a level that we can cope with and then also making a bunch of rules up on our own that we can follow and lifting them up to the level of God's law and then trying to keep that standard to present ourselves as okay before God. And so that means that you are free to fine-tune the law, kind of take what you want and leave the rest behind as you see fit to reassure yourself that you are actually keeping the law and therefore pleasing before God. And that's what we see Saul doing. Listen to what, there's a, a commentator, I caught this sentence, this commentator, a guy named H.L. Ellison. He says, why is it that Saul is, is still willing to go and like inquire through religious ritual? It's because, he says this, Saul, like not a few others, he sought direction not out of love for God, but for fear of making mistakes but for fear of making mistakes. That's why he was trying to be externally obedient. That's the essence of the law. You never be sure. You're always afraid. So you're making a, you're making a good show of it. Uh, what that shows us, this is what it teaches us. It teaches us that it is possible 
to do just about anything out of fear than love, even obedience to God. It's possible for us uh, to take just about anything out of fear and, and make it look like it's religious practice and, and worship of God. Uh, and this thing, this is, this, is, this is common. Listen to Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew 23, he's talking to the Pharisees uh, who are precise in their obedience, precise in their understanding of the law, precise in their understanding of Torah, and yet completely missing the point. This is what he said. This is what Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, they were so focused on the minutia and getting the details right that they missed the whole point of it was that, that, that theology that uh, the law was supposed to be producing a love for God that flowed out into a love for other things. Um, Paul says the same thing. Listen to what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 13, if I have all prophetic powers, listen to all these good things that Paul says. I can have all prophetic powers. I can have uh, an under, and understand all mysteries and knowledge. Theology. Uh, I can have all faith so as to move mountains. But if it's, I don't have love, I'm nothing. Nothing. What is he saying? Listen, he says, he says faith there. So he's talking about theological precision. If it's, there's no love that's surrounding that, then really he's saying it's all about you, not about God at all. And here's what I want us to think about. How does this touch us, right? We can, it's easy to hear passages like this and hear about, yeah, yeah, we can twist anything around and really that, and that make it look like it's about God, but really it's really about us. We think maybe about denominations that are more legalistic than we are and so they are doing you know obedience to the laws the big thing it's really about them and not God but how does this touch us that's what I want to ask because that's what's that's what's important we need to see how this this kind of thing this current hits us in our tradition in our denomination and I want you to consider whether it's possible is it possible to have theological precision that's not really about God at all. It's really about you. It's really about you being the expert, about you being the Lord over the church. Uh, is it possible for us to develop theological precision and have it not be surrounded by love, to be it devoid of love, so that there's no love for God being produced by it. There's no love for God's people being produced by it. And I mean all God's people. Not just our camp. So that there is no love for justice being produced by it. So that there is no love for mercy being produced by it. There's no love for the lost where we are driven to go out and make the gospel known. There's no mercy for the poor where we see that we, are, we, we were in filthy rags before Christ and he gives all his riches 
And so we have a responsibility to respond to that by being merciful to the afflicted and the oppressed in the world. Is it possible that we can have theological precision that is an empty form of religious practice, that is a form of godliness without power, that is what James calls the faith of demons? That's a super scary thought. That's a super scary thought, man, because we camp out there. It's so easy for us to make sound doctrine the seventh sola of the, of the rationalist reformation. Uh, trusting in perfect theology alone. <laughs> but that ain't it. That ain't the Bible. The Bible is trusting in Christ alone. All of our study of theology is not so that we can be overlords and the church become self-righteous and puffed up, but so that we can become even more uh, enraptured by the love of Jesus for us, that it produces love in our hearts, that then overflows with love for the lost, love for the world, love for justice, love for mercy, love for evangelism, all of those things. Listen, this is... This is and, and this is what happens. This is why, this is why, this is why the, the law is the heaviest burden of all. Uh, it's not just because it's a frustratingly impossible standard to live by. Uh, it's not just that it, is, it can turn you into a self-righteous Pharisee, but by relying on law, it ends, can, it ends up cutting us off from the grace of God. Cutting us off from the grace of God because we hit that crisis when we really need a form of godliness with power and we find the law cannot save us. The law cannot comfort us. And that's what's happened to Saul. He has hit the wall. It's the end of the road. Uh, one of the commentators I, I read this week said, there is nothing so utterly miserable than finding in the hour of greatest need that you had long ago placed yourself beyond the sound of God's voice and that you are totally alone. That's so scary. That's where Saul's at right now. That's the Matthew 7 passage that we read earlier. The scary thing about that passage is those people are, look good on the outside. They look great. How many times I've heard that passage preached as you, these are the sinners and the immoral. That's not what it says. It says, we are doing great external works for you. And Jesus says, but you do not follow the will of my Father. What is the will of the Father? That we believe on him whom he has sent. That's what's happening to Saul. He is utterly alone. And so he turns to the only thing he can think of, sorcery. And through that sorcery, the <laughs> Bible never says that necromancy or mediums are not real. It just says they're evil and stay away from them because they will hurt you. Conjures up Samuel uh, and he brings him the news of his de- defeat and despair uh, and tells him that he is facing the abyss, that very tomorrow he will be in the company of the dead. And that's what that 31 is all about. Chapter 31, the end of the story, is we see the fulfillment of everything, of the end of of that life relying on law. Saul is in battle, 
All of his heirs are killed. Saul is killed. His dynasty is erased from the face of the earth. Uh, Israel, the fortunes completely change for Israel. The Philistines once again put them under the yoke of oppression. And the end of the story is Saul is hanging in a pagan temple as the good news of, of, of their evil throughout the world. And then his bones are burned and buried in an unmarked grave. So sad. So awfully sad. The burden of the law is heavy. But, but the burden of Christ is light. The burden of Christ is light. Listen. When you buy a, when you, uh, you get married, a lot of times you'll buy a, a, a ring for your fiance. And uh, when you do that, when they get to the jewelers, what they do is they take the diamond ring out of the, out of the case and then they spread out this black velvet cloth and they put the ring on the black velvet cloth. Why do they do that? Because it makes a contrast to the beauty and brilliance and the shining splendor of the ring. The contrast underneath it uh, helps you to see the actual beauty of the ring. And that's what... Uh, that contrast is really what's happening here in these passages. Listen to another contrast, another kind of contrast that Jesus makes in one of the most beautiful and restful and wonderful passages in the New Testament from Matthew 11. At the end of Matthew 11, Jesus says, gives this contrast. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. That's the yoke of the law. And I will give you rest. That's Sabbath rest. Not Sunday Sabbath rest, but eternal realm, forever rest. Uh, that's the one on the one hand. And then he says, uh, or is it the, the contrast is from the law is take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He contrasts the yoke of the law with the yoke of Christ. So why is it, look at why is Samuel arranged like this at the end? Why does it go David, Saul, David, Saul? Why does it just tell the story straight through? Because the author wants us to see these contrasts. It's not written in chronological order. It's written for theological reasons. The author, in great, uh, amazing, beautiful, high literary beauty, has arranged the material to teach us theological points. True story, but what he wants to do is show us theological truth and the truth he wants to show us is the contrast between the burden of Saul and the burden of David because they both had burdens. Now we've talked before uh, about how you know that, that, that sin comes with a great burden that sacri- sacrificing and following Jesus has a great burden but sin has a greater burden. This is the same kind of thing. Uh, David had trouble, Right? So we've been talking about David as God uh, pulled him out in the wilderness and even before that, David has been experiencing nothing but trouble after trouble after trouble for a long time. We don't even know how long, but it's been a while. He lost everything, lost his home in, in the kingdom, lost his wife, lost his family, lost his connections, lost his career, lost his purpose in life. Uh, God, he was driven out into the wilderness with nowhere else to go but in the desert. So he lost his comfort. He lost his freedom. He lost any luxury in life. He was surrounded by heat and bad food and hot water. 
not enough of it. And then on top of that, he was constantly hunted by Saul. Saul was constantly right behind him, so he didn't know when, if he would have another day. He was constantly in anxiety and fear and in pain and in uncertainty. Uh, but now you take all that trouble, and now we can contrast it with Saul's trouble. The burden of Saul uh, is that he is in the absolute terror of knowing he should repent, but finding himself beyond the capability of doing it. It's so sad. He's really got nothing left for him to do but get up and walk out into the night. He's got nothing left to do but die. That is awful trouble. And the author wants that to contrast that with what, what, David, what, what David is going through, what we go through. What's the big difference between Saul's trouble and David's trouble? Big, trouble, big difference is, at the end of the, at the, end of the story, Saul's, all of Saul's trouble is meaningless. He just suffered. And there's no meaning. But David's trouble, all of it, in retrospect, as we look back, we see all of David's trouble is, all, is God's mercy and care and love for him even though it was hard. What God was doing was constantly corralling him or driving him into situations where he had to stop relying on his own power and he had to let himself be emptied so that he could rely on the power of God in and through him. And so in so doing, what God was creating in him wasn't, it was, it was, it was, in David's weakness, David recognizing his own weakness, that allowed him to empty himself of his own great ideas and allow the power of God to flow in and through him into the world as a conduit of divine power. That's what God is doing to David. That's what God is doing to us. So even in the harshest trial that we're undergoing, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how awful it seems, we can say to ourselves, none of this is meaningless. None of this is without purpose. None of this is without value. All of this is being directed by God because he loves me, because he is breaking me, he is prying my fingers off the death that I cling to and creating in me a new power, a new freedom that begins to, that relies on God and in our emptiness, God becomes full and we become what we are created to be, powerful, but not in our own selves, powerful in the Spirit of God. That's blessing and mercy. And so there is beauty in our burdens. That's the big difference. There is beauty in our burdens. Look, uh, you know, in this, this, this is not denying real trouble, obviously. Maybe you are exhausted from working long hours with low pay. Maybe you are suffering from uh, the, the injustice of your employer or your boss. Maybe you're getting a raw deal at work. Uh, maybe your relationships are tough right now and falling apart. Maybe your family feels like it's falling apart and you don't have any idea what to do to try and put it back together. Uh, all of that trouble that God knows we have. Like he's, what he's not saying is, could always be worse. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that. 
But what he is saying is that in that trouble, Christ is at work. God has not forgotten you. In that trouble, God is working beauty into the fabric of your life and your existence and creating in you something beautiful. So the reason why Christ's burden is lighter is not necessarily because it, might, it may be harder, it might, it, worldly standards, but it's lighter because what it is doing is producing light in us. Amen? But the biggest reason, the greatest reason why the burden of Christ is light is because the greatest burden that we will ever have to face has been taken away from us. This is the third point, is that Jesus has walked through the darkness for us. Uh, There's one more contrast in the middle of this story between Saul and David. I want you to see. um, Listen again. Listen again to the very end of the story at Endor. This puts on display really the high art and literary beauty and depth of this narrative, uh, that it is great art. It is true, but it's amazing and it's beautiful. Listen, Listen to this at the end of chapter 28. Saul has fallen on the ground. He is despairing. He is so afraid that he's physically paralyzed. We can't move. And the witch of Endor, the medium of Endor, this woman comes to him and says, and it says, now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it and she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate and then they rose and went away that night. Now I caught my ear when I read all that, right? All those pictures start popping out. The fattened calf just pulled my mind into the parable of the prodigal son where in that story the fattened calf is really the hero of the story. The fattened calf is representative of Jesus and the sacrifice of that animal that is what produces or makes it able for the Father to extend unboundless love to, the, to his runaway son, to all of his runaway sons and daughters. Uh, so that caught my ear, you know, the unleavened bread caught my ear. There was uh, the, really, it, just, it, it almost sounded like the medium of Endor is preparing for Saul this last supper as he prepares to comfort him as he prepares to go out and meet his, his death, to meet his end. Uh, but the ending really caught my ear. It said, and then they rose and went away that night. And it reminded me of another last story supper. Listen to this. And Jesus said to him, to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast so that he should give something to the poor. But so after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. That's John's dramatic flair at the end. He's not just saying it was, it was, you know, the sun had gone down, it was nighttime. He is saying that Judas was walking out into the beginning stages of outer darkness. And it was night. Now maybe I'm reading into this a little too much. I don't know. But, but listen Listen to the end of the David story. Listen to what the narrator does there. Here's the end of the David story. This is, this is uh, Akish talking to David, telling him he's got to go back to Ziklag. He can't go and fight against Jonathan and Saul, his best friend. 
It says, Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you. Start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. Four times in a row in that short passage. Morning, light, morning, light. That's dramatic flair. It's the same thing. It's contrasting. Saul is walking out into the beginning stages of the outer darkness. But David is walking into the light of Christ's sacrifice. And how, here's the, here's the question for us. How is that even possible, right? I mean, in this part in the David story, when he's marking down in the light, he has given up on God. He's become, every, he, uh, he has become everything that Saul has accused him of being, an enemy of the state, a traitor, a turncoat. He's getting ready with his men to go and fight against Jonathan, who loved him and Saul. There's nothing good about David going on in this story, and yet David gets to walk out into the morning, out into the light. Saul walks into the darkness. Why? Why does anybody ever get to walk out into the light instead of the darkness? And it's only because someone else has walked through the darkness for us. Listen to this. Gospel of Mark. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's really easy to get caught up in the story and think, Saul bad, David good, I'm good, we're good. Part of the reason I've been like dissecting this and bringing out the reality of David's life contrasted to Saul is that we can see that neither David nor Saul were good in their obedience. Uh, uh, it's never the fact that David was good. It's never the fact that we're good. Uh, it's never that our obedience is good because it's never good enough. It's never that our theology is perfect because our theology cannot save us. It's always the only reason anyone ever walks into the light instead of into the darkness is because Jesus walked to the darkness of death for us at the cross to give us his life. Uh, the only reason that we are not moaning with Saul that the, flight, the Father has forsaken us that God has abandoned us is because Jesus cried out for us that God had abandoned him. This one commentator, Dale David, said, Davis says, at the battle of Golgotha, Jesus walked out into the darkness in order that you might walk into the light of life. That's what it's all about. It's not about what we've done. It's about what Jesus has done for us. And do you believe that? Do you believe that? Really believe it in your heart? If you do, if we do, then that understanding of that theology shouldn't make us pumped up and self-righteous and without love and wicked. It should make us overflowing with love for God. It should make us overflowing with the love for God's people because we understand how much God has loved us. It should make us overflow with a love for justice in the world. 
It should make us overflow with a love for mercy. It should make us overflow with a love for mission to go out and find God's people and bring them in. It should overflow us with a love for all of those things because we know how much God has loved us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know all about ourselves and sometimes it's so hard, it's even harder to hear how much you love us and how secure we are in you than it is to hear about a list of things that we can do to make ourselves right before you. Somehow that seems simpler. Somehow that seems easier. Uh, But there is no, the list is long (laughs) and arduous. That list requires moral perfection every day of our lives without fail. And the only one who's ever achieved that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for your word that tells us these amazing things we would have never thought up on our own. That Jesus has earned our righteousness before you for us. He has walked through the death passage for us. He has taken on the darkness for us. He has taken on your rejection and abandonment for us so that we could have life, so that we could have peace with you, so that we could have an eternal future of never-ending joy. So we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you. We pray that that would work itself so deep into the fabric of our being that we would begin to, be, to overflow with love for your people, for the lost, and for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.